And now introducing Mr. Keith Lanton. Good morning. Today is uh, Monday, May 2nd. Our first uh, third of the year is uh, behind us. One of the uh, more challenging first four months of the year, which we'll talk about for uh, both stock and bond markets uh, here domestically in the United States. Uh, this morning, uh, we'll talk about uh, the first third of the year. Um, we'll talk about uh, some, uh, some relative historical context. Uh, to where we are, uh, both in terms of uh, interest rates and uh, in terms of uh, equity markets. Um, and then uh, we'll get some uh, insights into where we are and maybe where we're going uh, with the bond market. And Brad Harris uh, will join us uh, to give uh, some further insights. So hope everyone uh, enjoyed the beginning of spring. And uh, here we are in May and uh, hopefully, we'll start to see some uh, some flowers here in May as uh, as we move uh, past the winter and the uh, beginning of spring. So we're going to start this morning with uh, some thoughts uh, from uh, James Clear. Uh, talk about him occasionally, uh, author of Atomic Habits, and uh, some thoughts that uh, that he shared that I thought I would uh, share with the group um, over the weekend. Um, some thoughts on how to approach. Uh, success and how to approach uh, achieving success and how it's an iterative process um, and to think that just because something's not working, if the probability is in your favor, stay on the path. So just because something doesn't work doesn't mean it's the wrong choice. The world is full of probabilities, not certainties. Find a game or a situation where probabilities favor you and keep taking shots. When you're in a situation where that uh, where that structure is to your advantage, um, over the long term, you will, in very high probability, achieve success. On goal setting, if it is if it, if you know where you want to go um, in a in a particular situation, or more importantly in life, uh, people, friends, family, they tend to help or they tend to get out of the way. Both of those are useful. And when trying to accomplish what you're setting out to do, remember this tenant, people follow incentives, not advice. And if you're trying to influence someone or perhaps uh, convince them that your viewpoint is right or that they uh, need to uh, rethink, which is one of the hardest things uh, to encourage someone else to do, uh, remember these words from uh, writer and Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Powers, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. And a question for you today, am I willing to look foolish today so I can learn something that will make me better tomorrow? All right, while we ponder those thoughts, uh, we will take a look here at uh, what's going on in financial markets this morning. Uh, markets were uh, attempting a, a rebound after the uh, dramatic sell-off uh, in equity markets on Friday. Um, at least at the outset, those rebound attempts uh, look to be uh, thwarted as futures uh, look like they are going to open, at least uh, at the moment, slightly to the downside. Um, we're looking at Dow futures just down about 10 points, S&P futures down about 8 points, and NASDAQ futures uh, about 40 points uh, below fair value. Uh, growth concerns uh, continue to linger, um, adding to some of the pressure on the futures uh, and uh, perhaps uh, affecting the rebound. Uh, were China's April manufacturing PMI, which came in at 47.4, uh, reading below 50, is indicative of a contracting economy. 
and that number was worse than expected as uh, news that uh, Beijing has also tightened COVID restrictions, uh, also uh, weighing on uh, concerns that that number is not uh, going to uh, rebound in the near term. Um, on the uh, positive side, the markets uh, are uh, drawing some optimism that perhaps uh, with uh, May and the beginning of a new trading month that there are some uh, inflows and some rebalances going on uh, out of uh, out of fixed income, which, uh, believe it or not, has uh, outperformed uh, equities last month, uh, albeit uh, both uh, not uh, good performers, um, but nevertheless, uh, some rebalancing may be taking place. And we are seeing weakness in oil as uh, concerns about uh, reduced demand, especially from China with those lockdowns. Uh, weighing on uh, on oil uh, down uh, to about $101 a barrel or down about uh, about uh, $4 per barrel. Natural gas continuing to move higher, up to $7.33, uh, and uh, natural gas is up 1.2%. Uh, that uh, strength uh, partially due to uh, the situation uh, that continues to take place uh, in Europe um, and uh, the reports that uh, Russia is going to not export natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria. Uh, gold uh, weaker this morning, down about $37 an ounce, a significant move to the downside, almost 2% to 1875 uh, per ounce. This is as gold, even though it's a, a safe haven in these uncertain times, is facing increasing uh, competition from, uh, from, from U.S. Uh, cash and U.S. Uh, treasuries as interest rates push up. So, um, the competition to gold being uh, holding uh, dollars is becoming a more competitive uh, to holding gold as uh, we are seeing the two-year yield up uh, to 272 this morning, up three basis points. The 10-year yield um, is up four basis points to 293, and the 30-year yield is back to that 3% level, um, up six basis points. Um, so spreads between twos and tens is about uh, 22 to 23 basis points. So uh, positive, but uh, but marginally so. Um, overseas uh, equity indices in the Asia Pacific region began the week on a lower note. Uh, markets in China, Hong Kong, and Singapore were closed for Labor Day. Uh, Japan was down uh, one tenth of one percent. India down two tenths of a percent. South Korea down three tenths of one percent. In Australia down 1.3%. In Europe, we have the uh, FTSE in U the UK closed for a bank holiday, but the uh, markets in Europe across the board otherwise uh, close, uh, are, are, are down uh, roughly 1% um, overseas uh, markets. Um, in general news, a uh, report uh, from the New York Times um, that uh, the Ukraine is evacuating civilians from that uh, steel plant in, uh, in Maripol. Also over the weekend, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, visited uh, Kiev and pledged to support the Ukraine until victory is won. Uh, Financial Times reporting that Beijing is tightening coronavirus restrictions, um, this despite the fact that experts are warning about the damaging effects of the zero-coronavirus policy in China. Um, Washington Post is uh, reporting that President Biden is considering canceling at least 10000 in student loan debt for people with incomes below 150000 this would cost the government about $245 billion, um, and the New York Times is reporting that uh, if uh, President Biden were to uh, do that through executive order, it would likely face uh, legal challenges. In Texas, Governor uh, Greg Abbott is considering declaring an invasion at the southern border, which would allow Texas to take most border security control from the federal government and deport illegal immigrants. 
Uh, Bloomberg reporting that some of the weakness in uh, treasuries may be due to a significant overseas seller. Um, reporting that uh, an overseas uh, an overseas investor has sold about sixty billion in U.S. Treasuries over the last uh, three months, and the Financial Times is reporting that Germany wants phased in Russian oil embargo um, and uh, would like to do that over the next several months. Over the weekend, uh, Berkshire Hathaway had their uh, had their annual meeting. Uh, they reported earnings as well, which uh, came in uh, uh, below expectations, partly weighed down by a uh, weakness in the equity market and uh, therefore a de- decline in the investment portfolio at Berkshire. Um, but uh, the interesting thing was Berkshire Hathaway, after uh, many uh, years of uh, not being able to find investments, uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger uh, put to work uh, almost 40 to $50 billion, uh, significantly increasing their uh, ownership of uh, Chevron Texas, uh, well now it's called Chevron, uh, CVX, uh, now one of uh, the largest holdings in the uh, Buffett uh, Berkshire portfolio, uh, also taking a significant stake in uh, Activision as an arbitrage play, um, obviously expecting that deal to close. Some are speculating that uh, the Justice Department may be concerned with Microsoft uh, purchasing Activision, but uh, uh, Berkshire uh, clearly uh, placing their, uh, their money um, where their mouth is and uh, suggesting that deal will close. Um, that uh, stock was trading around 80, and the deal was north of 100. Um, so uh, significant uh, cash deployment there on that uh, arbitrage uh, situation for uh, Activision. Also at that uh, meeting, um, Warren Buffett uh, and uh, Charlie Munger uh, suggesting that uh, the U.S. markets had uh, become uh, riddled with uh, speculation and speculative uh, investors um, and uh, suggesting that in the first quarter that a lot of those investors are uh, getting uh, washed out and uh, as a result, uh, creating uh, for the first time in a long time uh, opportunities. Um, one of the uh, culprits for that uh, speculation, uh, Charlie Munger, um, had some uh, criticism for uh, Robinhood, even suggesting that uh, the stock, uh, which is sold off significantly, is getting their comeuppance um, for encouraging individual investors who may not uh, be experienced investors um, with the gamification and casinoization of the markets. Um, suggesting that uh, that they approached uh, investing in the wrong manner and uh, basically accusing Robinhood of uh, of uh, bringing to the marketplace uh, many investors who were uh, ill-equipped uh, for the knowledge and risks necessary to participate um, in the financial markets. So where does that bring us uh, to this week? Um, this is a, a big week for uh, for news uh, and data. Um, today, we do get the Institute for Supply uh, Management releasing the Purchasing Managers Index for April. Uh, we're looking for a reading of 57.7, roughly in line with March. Um, we also get a slew of, uh, of earnings uh, this week, uh, even though uh, we are past uh, the point of uh, the majority of the big earnings. Uh, still have about uh, 20% of companies left to report, and a lot of those companies are reporting this week. Um, Biggest event of the week, uh, despite the fact that uh, we get the employment report this week on Friday, which is usually the biggest event. But the biggest event this week is the uh, Wednesday announcement from the Federal Open Market Committee um, and their announcement on monetary policy decision. Uh, The FOMC is widely expected to raise the Fed funds rate by a half a point to three quarters to one percent. Current Wall Street consensus calls for the Fed funds rate to be three to three and a quarter by the end of the year as a hawkish Fed tries to catch up in its fight against the highest inflation reading in four decades. And then on Friday, 
Um, we will uh, get uh, the other half of the Fed's mandate, which is employment. We'll get some color on that as uh, the Bureau uh, BLS, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, releases the jobs report for April. Economists forecast a gain of 375,000 jobs in non-farm payrolls compared with 431,000 increase last month. Unemployment rate expected to remain unchanged near historic lows of 3.6% as the labor market remains tight as job openings continue to outpace job seekers. So moving on to Barron's and taking a look at uh, the financial markets and uh, trying to uh, prognosticate uh, where uh, where both uh, the bond and the stock market may, uh, may, may be in the future and how to allocate uh, your investment portfolio to uh, be well-equipped to uh, mitigate risk and hopefully participate uh, in uh, appreciation or mitigate depreciation moving forward. And hopefully some of this insight will help in making some of those decisions. So Barron's in their up-and-down Wall Street column, entitled A Tough Month Hits Stocks Hard But Spares the Real Economy. Um, Barron's uh, pointing out that uh, the S&P 500 lost 8.8% for the worst monthly showing since March of 2020, which was uh, the COVID-related plunge. Uh, the NASDAQ last month uh, lost 13.3%, which was the most since the uh, financial crisis. Um, and this was the worst showing since October of 2008. Um, and uh, now this week, uh, we have uh, the Federal Reserve um, with their decision and uh, all eyes, uh, again, uh, pointed to uh, Wednesday and uh, looking for clarity on uh, not what necessarily the Fed is going to do, um, but what Chairman Powell is going to say at that post-meeting news conference uh, regarding the future course of interest rates to see if the markets... Uh, have their expectations uh, properly uh, baked into the uh, proverbial cake. Um, the market's uh, sharply higher rate expectations have lifted uh, Treasury yields with the benchmark 10-year yield up 50 ba- 56 basis points for April and 139 basis points since the start of the year, and that was before today's move up. If you include today, we're up about 143 basis points since the start of the year. Now, last week, uh, we got a report that the uh, first quarter GDP showed a 1.4% annualized real contraction after a robust uh, fourth quarter of uh, growth of 6.9%. But the markets immediately looked past that uh, number as being due to special factors. Um, So uh, it looked bad um, on the surface, but when you dig deeper, uh, that number was affected by a surge in imports that had been delayed by the backup at the docks. So... As imports uh, surge past exports, that weighs on GDP. It gets subtracted from GDP if imports exceed exports, um, and therefore you get the GDP number coming in significantly lower than expected. Um, but the fact that GDP gets weighed down by imports basically indicates that the U.S. economy is uh, is running hotter than a lot of the economies that we export to. Um, so it's not necessarily um, something that would uh, indicate the weakness in the economy, and therefore the markets uh, looked past um, that weak number. In fact, if you uh, stripped out uh, those factors like that inventory uh, adjustment uh, that we built up inventories and the fact that uh, the, in the previous quarter and the fact that uh, imports exceeded exports, uh, after you bake that out of the cake, uh, you will uh, see that uh, the GDP number actually increased at a pace of 3.7% um, in the first quarter. So the economy continuing uh, to be strong and uh, from an interest rate expectation standpoint continued to run hot. What the markets are going to be probably most focused on um, in terms of uh, Chairman Powell's uh, speech 
um, is what uh, he has to say about the uh, Fed's balance sheet, which is up to about $9 trillion. Uh, J.P. Morgan is expecting uh, the Fed uh, to uh, say that they are going to be participating in a runoff of that $9 trillion at a rate of $1.1 trillion per year um, over the course of four years. If they were, in fact, to do that, they say the cumulative effect of quantitative tightening would be the equivalent of about 210 basis points in rate hikes, um, in their opinion. There are others out there who suggest uh, that it would even be tighter um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the effect or equivalent to a greater increase in, uh, in interest rates uh, if you were to get a runoff of that magnitude. Now, all this uh, interest rate talk and, uh, and, and uh, geopolitical events, um, all uh, all swirling together to have a very significant impact um, in a sector of uh, the financial markets that usually doesn't get as much attention, and that is the global currency markets, uh, which are proving uh, to be on a wild ride. Um, the uh, Japanese yen last week plunged to 130 to the dollar. That is a 12% weakening since just early March. I mean, that is a staggering uh, move down in the Japanese yen and appreciation in the U.S. dollar. It is a 20-year low, um, and that was capped by a nearly 2% uh, downward uh, draft after the Bank of Japan affirmed its cap on their 10-year Treasury bond yields at 25 basis points. So basically what the Bank of Japan is doing is they are printing money every time the 10-year yield exceeds 25 basis points, and they are buying the the 10-year uh, equivalent uh, here in the United States. That's increasing the money supply. That's dropping the value of the currency, but it's keeping that interest rate pegged at uh, at 25 basis points uh, to keep those rates extremely low in Japan. And then what that's doing is further widening the differential between U.S. interest rates and Japanese interest rates. At the same time, um, if you're looking at uh, the currency markets in China, uh, the Chinese yuan is, uh, is uh, very carefully uh, monitored and controlled by the Chinese authorities. Um, yet last month, we saw an almost 4% drop uh, of the Chinese currency versus the U.S. dollar. Uh, that was the steepest decline in the Chinese currency since 2015. And when that uh, drop occurred, uh, it was enough to uh, be a major participant in roiling the markets in 2015. And at the same time, we've got uh, the euro sliding about 8% since January, five-year low uh, to the dollar, 1.05. Much of that has uh, been attributed to uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine and uh, the effects on the European economies. Um, nevertheless, uh, the European currency was already under pressure even before uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine since last May. The euro is down 14% uh, against the dollar. The one thing that the strong dollar is helping do, it is helping the Fed to uh, rein in inflation, doing some of the work of expected interest rate hikes, um, making it uh, making a it's uh, cheaper for the U.S. to uh, import goods and services or for those who are traveling um, and finally able to go overseas. Uh, U.S. dollar will go a lot further and make uh, international travel less expensive. Um, but what it's also doing is it's weighing on big multinational companies that are in the S&P 500 because as they're doing business overseas, bringing those profits back into the U.S., uh, those uh, profits are contributing to earnings in a more diminished capacity as uh, as those earnings are um, are brought back into the form of dollars in terms of less dollars because their currencies and the m- monies being collected overseas are less valuable in U.S. dollars as the dollar appreciates. So uh, creating a headwind um, that's not getting a lot of attention uh, for U.S. Uh, multinationals. So Barron's uh, also opining on 
the Federal Reserve in their job to uh, target a soft landing um, and the Federal Reserve's ability to beat back inflation. And uh, in the economy section of uh, Barron's, um, they suggested uh, that uh, we are not going to get a soft landing and that the only way to beat back inflation, they surmise, will take a recession. Uh, the current consensus view that a so-called soft landing is not only possible but likely is reminiscent of the former dominant view that inflation was transitory. Uh, the chief economist at Apollo Global Management said that uh, the that the uh, Fed, um, in order to cool the economy, uh, must raise interest rates enough to cool the housing market. Um, and uh, housing and the uh, purchases that are related to housing, they say, make up about 40% of the CPI. And uh, if the Fed is looking to cool the housing market, um, they feel that that will have a significant effect on the broader economy um, as uh, as uh, houses uh, a make up about uh, make up about uh, 10% of uh, GDP um, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the purchases that uh, that get made um, to purchase uh, purchase homes. And to uh, and then to restore those homes and uh, and and buy furniture and things like that. Um, but the other big factor having to do with housing is that uh, the value of one's home um, is a big contributor to the wealth effect. In other words, how wealthy you feel when you own that home and it's appreciating in value. Uh, most people have more wealth tied up in their homes uh, than they do in the stock market. So uh, if home prices do start to depreciate. Um, then what you uh, may experience is people feeling poorer and spending less um, as an additional uh, additional weight on the market. Uh, another factor that Barron suggests uh, taking place uh, in in homes and that we may see a residual effect um, on homes is as inflation has picked up and home prices have increased, uh, despite the fact that perhaps we're hitting an inflection point in home valuation. Um, there's a significant lag between home inflation and uh, and rents, and we may have another 12 to 18 months to go before rents peak. Um, and this is uh, an inflation uh, inflation weight that uh, the markets are going to have to carry as uh, as uh, rents uh, potentially continue to increase over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, and uh, and individuals uh, are required or forced to uh, continue to pay up in order to uh, in order to rent uh, their apartments or or their current living situation. Another concern that uh, is raised in this article is the feeling from small businesses. Uh, small business survey in March had some uh, grim results uh, in terms of small businesses who are often canaries in the coal mine, one of the first to uh, feel uh, the weight of a slowdown. Um, and a record 72% of small business owners say they are raising their selling prices, which is obviously inflationary. Um, and another 50% said that uh, they don't see any change in the increase uh, or pace of their increases over the next uh, six months. Um, perhaps uh, concerning and tied to the fact that uh, that we are seeing those inflationary pers- uh, those inflationary pressures, um, those small business owners say that uh, they see improved business conditions over the next six months. Um, that index is at a record low. Um, so small businesses uh, getting increasingly negative, uh, in fact, uh, extremely negative um, in terms of uh, their expectations of uh, business moving forward. Now, I talked about uh, the first four months of the year um, being uh, extremely tough uh, this this year, um, and I'll just put that into some uh, historical context. Um, markets last week uh, fell about 3.3%. That's the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 has now fallen 13% during the first 
four months of 2022. That is its worst start since the latter part of the Great Depression in 1939. Not to be outdone, the Nasdaq Composite tumbled 3.9% last week, putting it down 17% for the first four months of the year. That is its worst start going back to 1971, which makes it a record because the NASDAQ began in 1971. Uh, so the worst start for the NASDAQ um, since, uh, since its uh, inception. So if you're feeling uh, a little, uh, little uh, under pressure or feeling that, uh, feeling that uh, the markets uh, are weak and uh, you're searching for uh, solutions to how to structure your portfolio, you're not alone. Um, the numbers uh, bear out uh, why there is so much uh, weakness. Uh, it is not just uh, a feeling in uh, in your gut. Um, it is uh, it is reality here, backed up by hard data. Uh, looking back, there have been 25 four month four month periods, not not first four months of the year, but four month periods since 1992 when the S and P dropped by 10 percent or more. Um, the good news is that uh, the median gain the following six months was 2.6%. That's the good news. The bad news is there were many periods um, where uh, where the numbers were, were negative and meaningfully negative. And after falling as much as we've fallen, 2.6% uh, over the next six months, uh, even if uh, even if it's an average, uh, it still doesn't feel uh, all that wonderful uh, moving forward. Uh, Bank of America last week, their uh, chief strategist out saying that about a third of a recession is priced in. So if a recession were to happen, they say that about a third is priced in. Uh, the markets, uh, in terms of the S&P 500, uh, typically dropped about 32% during a bear market and uh, were about a third of the way there, although they weren't necessarily saying we are going into recession. Um, what they are saying is that if one were to happen, that about a third of it is uh, is priced in. Moving forward, uh, market strategists uh, suggest uh, avoid earning torpedoes. What are earning torpedoes? Those are the companies that need to deliver perfect earnings in order to avoid a blow-up. Um, very challenging uh, companies that uh, markets have uh, priced for perfection. Um, even if they come in with good results, we are seeing meaningful sell-offs. So where do you look? You look for fallen angels. Um, stocks like Facebook, where uh, earnings uh, came in uh, a little better than expected, even though guidance going forward uh, was weak. But uh, when those uh, expectations are very low, um, as we saw with Facebook, uh, the possibility or probability of uh, less disappointment is uh, showing up in uh, in a little bit better market reaction. I'm going to talk about an interview um, in Barron's with uh, Rushir Sharma. He's the uh, chairman of uh, Rockefeller International. Um, he, uh, about 10 years ago, um, had suggested that uh, the U.S. was a comeback nation and felt that uh, the decade from 2010 to 2020 would be a decade uh, for U.S. equities. Um, and now, um, as we are in the beginning of uh, the following decade, 2020 to 2030, um, he is suggesting that this is uh, the decade perhaps uh, for uh, emerging markets, uh, which uh, Similar to the U.S. in 2010, um, looked like the last place you might want to be after the financial crisis here in the U.S. Uh, emerging markets stocks have been uh, very weak performers over the past decade, and he suggests uh, that they may be the relative winners uh, this decade. And his thesis for that is that uh, much of the bargaining power in terms of wages um, in this decade has uh, shifted from employers uh, to employees. Um, and uh, this is something that will benefit uh, many of the emerging market economies where uh, there are so many workers 
uh, working for uh, so little. Um, and uh, now they may have some bargaining power and therefore some uh, purchasing power. As a result, he feels that uh, global luxury stocks may be close to a peak as this era of increasing wealth uh, based on asset price inflation fades. Instead, he suggests looking for more mass consumer companies that rely on the lower to mid-end of the segment uh, to start doing a lot better as these individuals who get more pricing power are able to uh, buy more basic staples. Um, he suggests that allocations to the U.S. and China are too high. He points out that the U.S. is 62% of the global market cap, and its economy is just 26% of the world. Emerging markets, market cap is 11% um, of the uh, world's global markets, while its, uh, while its uh, economic size is equivalent to about 35% of world markets. And he suggests that uh, many investors are massively under-allocated uh, to this segment of the market. Um, adding some further uh, possibility or probability to his thesis, he says, is that the historically the best variable for the performance of emerging markets has been commodity prices. So if you believe the commodity prices uh, can or will remain firm, um, then uh, that uh, lends further credence to the suggestion that uh, that emerging markets uh, may be the place to be in 2020 to 2030. So finally, before I turn things over to uh, Brad. Um, this morning, uh, Morningstar um, had a uh, market update, which driving the historic bear market for bonds. Um, you may be feeling uh, some of the pain um, in your bond portfolio, and that's because uh, the move down in bonds or move up in yields in bond prices is historic. Uh, the move has been real, and it's been painful. Um, for those who haven't experienced the bond bear market, well, this is what it fe- feels like. Um, how bad has it been for bonds? Um, put uh, returns into perspective. Uh, U.S. core bonds uh, are down 9.24% year-to-date, um, and long-term core bonds are down 18.98% year-to-date. And uh, even short-term core bonds are down 4.5%. Uh, um, if you're looking at individual sectors, uh, just in the first quarter, corporates on average down 12.4%. Uh, mortgages down 8%. Treasuries down 8%. And the reason they say for this uh, significant uh, move down in bond prices is not just that inflation um, is running hot at north of 8%. It's not just that the unemployment rate is at extremely low levels. Is that the surge in inflation and economic growth came after the Fed put in place exceptionally low rates to support the economy during the recession. We started this uh, move up in interest rates with a Fed funds rate that was near zero and with a central bank that had just purchased $4 trillion worth of bonds and, in fact, hadn't even stopped buying bonds until just a few weeks ago. Um, so, in other words, uh, we began this move from an extremely easy place in terms of financial uh, bond markets. Um, and now we need to get tighter, but we need to get it from such a low level, in other words, from such extremely easy conditions, um, just moving, uh, moving, moving the needle up um, just to get to neutral, yet alone to a more tight, tighter position, um, requires a, uh, a, a much more significant uh, mind adjustment uh, than historic uh, moves previously in interest rates uh, from where the interest rate move began. I think that's a good context. Uh, to turn things over to Brad and give us some more insights. Good morning, Brad. Morning, Keith. Morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for the intro. 
Um, I hope everyone had a nice weekend, and welcome back to the battle that has become uh, these markets. Uh, the level of negativity is so high that in normal times, I would want to take that as a contrarian buy signal. However, with uh, international crises and a hawkish Fed, it's really difficult to, to make such a bold statement, and uh, we really have to stay on our toes here. As municipals have sold off, please remember these taxable equivalent yields. But at these levels, bonds become investments, not just placeholders uh, or, or what some people might you know, incorrectly re- refer to as cash equivalents, uh, but, but they are actually giving some rate of return here. Uh, in the short range, 2% tax-free is an equivalent of 338. In the intermediate, uh, 10 to 12 years, give or take, 3% is a taxable equivalent of 5.06%. And uh, in the long range, 4% is a tax equivalent of 6 and 3 quarter percent. That's in the 40% bracket all in. Uh, these are truly becoming viable assets for a portfolio. Next, it's time, uh, it's time to discuss uh, tax loss swaps. I know it's early in the season. Normally, we leave that to later in the year. But many, many clients, including myself, are nauseous uh, with where 15 to 20-year 2% bonds are trading. Uh, within the last year, uh, they were trading at par, which was not not a horrible option for a market with 0% rates. Uh, and the last year, uh, these bonds are now trading in the 70s. Uh, there are a couple of options. One, you can just accept that you're getting 2% every year until the bonds mature, which is still a, 3.8, a 3.38% tax equivalent, and just put it away and not worry about it. Uh, the other option is that you can consider uh, tax loss tax loss harvesting, at, which means that you will take the loss and you can use that loss to offset profits in other products, uh, either immediately or carry those lo- losses forward to future years uh, and can offset against future profits. Uh, and then what you do is you reset to a new cost basis. Uh, psychologically, this may make the investor feel better about the position to not have to stare that loss every single month when when that bond is uh, priced in the portfolio, uh, and also obviously gives an opportunity to realize uh, some profits as as you go. Uh, the reason that I mentioned uh, tax loss swaps this early in the year is uh, because my thought is that we should really take our time doing these. Uh, for these low coupon bonds, there's such poor liquidity in the market. At a certain point, on the other hand, these 2% bonds could be a great buy for a total return investor. Uh, we will keep an eye on that. At this point, obviously, it feels like it's the falling knife, so we're not there yet. But it's at a certain point, you buy these low coupon bonds this cheap, and you get a market rally, and uh, they're tra- they're, they are tradable. Uh, one last thought, and it sure doesn't feel like it now, but of course, there's a possibility at some point... Uh, Bonds could rally, and we we could see lower long-term rates again. If the Fed mishandles this process, if the Fed mishandles this process, there's always that possibility. Uh, so no one has a crystal ball. Uh, we make educated guesses and decisions. So as uh, as 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 we move on, and I say every week, it's very important to stay nimble and not to set your mind that only one thing is going to happen one way have to keep an open mind about what's going on and stay with the news flow and 
stay with the markets. Anyway, I hope uh, everyone has a great week, and I'll hand it back to Keith. Thanks. That's everything I've got. Thank you for listening to Mr. Keith Lanton. This podcast is available on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora. For more information, please visit our website at www.heraldlantern.com. Opinions expressed herein are subject to change and not necessarily the opinion of the firm. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The information presented herein is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. It is important that you consider your tolerance for risk and investment goals when making investment decisions. Investing in securities does involve risk and the potential of losing money. The material does not constitute research, investment advice, or trade recommendations.